Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we come to the end of this year, we do want to thank you for your goodness to us, and we want to thank you for your faithfulness to us. Because, Father, we're so aware that we haven't been faithful. And there have been times when we have broken your law in word, thought, or deed. And, Father, we thank you that despite our brokenness, despite the many times we have failed you, that you have nonetheless been faithful to us. We thank you that your grace is new every morning. We thank you, Lord, that your hand has been upon us individually and as a church, that you have preserved us, that you have kept us united. We thank you also that you have used us, and, Lord, sometimes we are surprised at that because we know how broken we are, and yet in your kindness you have used people like us. Thank you for using us as a church. Thank you for helping us to be a light in the darkness. Father, thank you for providing for us in so many, many different ways. You have been so good to us and so kind to us and so gracious to us. And we thank you this morning for all that you have done. And Father, we pray for the new year. We pray that you may continue to be with us as you have promised. We thank you that you have been true to your promise, that you will never leave us or forsake us. And Father, some of us this year have gone through deep, deep waters. Some of us have faced real, real sadness and grief and loss and brokenness in one way or the other. Thank you, Lord, that you never left us. Thank you that you never abandoned us. Some of us, Lord, have walked in darkness. Some of us have drifted from you. Some of us have played in the shadows. Thank you, Lord, that you drew us back to yourself and rescued us from ourselves. Thank you, Father, for your great goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have not treated us as we deserve, but you have treated us with immeasurable love and amazing grace. Thank you, Father, that though things change around us and our world changes all the time, that you are our rock and you never change. You are our refuge. You are our security. Thank you, Lord, that 
though we do not know the future, we do know that you are with us and that you are trustworthy. Father, we know that you don't always answer our questions, but you are trustworthy. So help us to trust you. Forgive us when we've lost faith in you. Forgive us when we've doubted your love and your goodness and your sovereignty. Father, thank you again for being so gracious to us and kind to us. Meet with us now through your word once again. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, and we're looking at verse 18 to 25. It'll be a great, great help to me if you do have that open in front of you. We're going to look at a couple of other passages. We need to do some work, so hopefully you'll stay with me as we uh, search the scriptures and as we are drawn closer to Christ. Imagine if you wanted to make Christianity... um, um, more um, wealthy, if you wanted to be the biggest, the wealthiest, the fastest growing religion in the world. I googled for the top um, marketing companies in the world, and one of the top marketing companies in the world is, is called Deloitte Digital. Imagine if we went to Deloitte and said to them, your brief is to help us Uh, make Christianity the biggest, the wealthiest, the fastest growing, the most successful religion in the world. No doubt they would say to us, you know, you've got an organization which is at least 2,000 years old, and we need to reinvent it. We need to do some remaking. It's a little bit old-fashioned. We need a broom, and we need a more modern broom. Perhaps they would say that uh, you need to get rid of certain things. They don't seem to go so well uh, in the 21st century. Perhaps you need to get rid of uh, the concept of judgment or the concept of hell. I mean, that isn't really marketable or sellable, is it? Perhaps you need to get rid of the idea of repentance or authority. Perhaps you need to get rid of the Ten Commandments. Perhaps you need to get rid of the cross and the blood. And definitely what you need to do is you need to get rid of the virgin birth. You know, there aren't virgin births, so it's quite, quite a hard sell. Um, they just don't happen. And yet Matthew, the author of this gospel, remember Matthew was a Jewish man. He was called Levi. Jesus called him to be one of his disciples. And uh, Levi was a tax collector, and he was, uh, he was immoral. Uh, He was corrupt. He would steal money from his own people, give some of it to the Roman oppressors, and the rest of it he would put in his own pocket. Well, here we have Matthew, the original state capturer. And he's writing this gospel because Jesus changed his life. Jesus revolutionized his life. And the author of this gospel goes to great lengths not to minimize the virgin birth, but actually to emphasize it. We should more accurately talk about the virginal conception. Matthew expressly, in this passage, in five, six verses, he mentions the virgin birth five times. Have a look. Quickly have a look. Chapter 1, verse 15, there's a hint of it. Chapter 1, verse 15, And Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the father of Jesus. 
No, it doesn't say that. And Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then he mentions it another four times, the virgin birth. Verse 18, the end of verse, verse, verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20b, in a dream, the Lord appeared, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, again, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then verse 25, but he but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Matthew, rather than minimizing uh, the virgin birth, actually emphasizes it. He repeats it five times, and it's quite clear, it's quite emphatic, and he states it in a very objective, historical manner. So what we're going to have a look at this morning is the virgin birth. And we're going to answer three questions. What does the Bible say? Secondly, why is it important? And it's very important. And thirdly, what does it mean to us? So stay with me as we work through what the Bible teaches concerning the birth of Christ. Let me just go down one side road. I don't need to tell you that there are many, many people, even Christian people, uh, who do not believe in the virgin birth. In fact, I would think in the Western Christian church, if you believe in the virgin birth, you're probably in the minority. So if you, like me, believe in the virgin birth, which is what it says, then we're probably in the minority. A couple of years ago, I read an interview with a, with a senior pastor of a mega church in America. He was asked about the virgin birth, and this is what he said, I quote, I could never in public deny or affirm the virgin birth of Christ. When I have something I can't comprehend, I just don't deal with it. So either he's saying that it's optional or irrelevant, or he's saying, I don't believe in it. Here's what a theologian says. I quote again, the virgin birth account is a clearly recognized mythological element in our faith tradition, whose purpose was not to describe a literal event, but to capture the transcendent dimensions of God in the earthbound words and concepts of the first century, end of quote. So there's the idea amongst many people. It's a myth. It's a legend. You don't have to believe it. It's teaching us a spiritual truth. And yet the Gospels are quite clear. Matthew is quite clear that he's giving us a historical account. It's not a myth. It's not a legend, according to Matthew, of the birth of Christ. In another book, the author claims, uh, because this is, this, is about the only, this, is a, this is about the only alternative, the author claims that Jesus was the illegitimate child of a Roman soldier who had a love affair with Mary. So if you don't have a virgin birth, you've got to have an immoral birth. I mean, it's your only option. So you can understand people saying that that was the reason uh, for the virgin birth. So it's clear that it's not a popular doctrine, and it certainly isn't often taught. Let's have a look at the evidence. Let's look at the source material, because that's what we have in the Gospels. We have the source material of the Christian faith. Uh, Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that gives us the source documents of who Jesus was and why he came. Perhaps a good idea over this Christmas period is is to read through Matthew's Gospel. 
perhaps read one chapter a day. One chapter a day will take you five to ten minutes. And have a look at who is this Jesus, because if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you know, want to know what God loves, look at what Jesus loves. If you want to know what God hates, look at what Jesus hates. So read through Matthew's Gospel. Have a look at Jesus. All right, we're going to look at, at the evidence. First question, then, is what does the Bible say about the virgin birth? Well, let's start in the Old Testament. Always a good place to start. Genesis chapter 3. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your smartphone. Genesis chapter 3. Just, um, just move down to chapter 3 and verse 15. Here we have the first hint. It's only a hint. It's just a shadow. It's just a taste. But the first hint of the virgin birth. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So here is... Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve created by God, the creation created in chapter 1. Chapter 2, God, God uh, um, grows his creation, and God uh, creates the first marriage. Uh, Adam and Eve are married. They become one flesh. Chapter 3, as we know, is, is the fall, where our four parents rebelled against God, turned against God rejected God's authority. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And here we have God's curse on the serpent. Chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it's interesting there, verse 15, in the original Hebrew, it says, I will put enmity or conflict between your seed and her seed. Now, it's the only place in the Bible where it's not a man's seed. It's a woman's seed, her seed. What we have here is the first hint of the coming of Christ and the cross of Christ, because Christ is the ultimate seed of Eve through Mary. And it was on the cross where Satan struck Jesus' heel. It was on the cross where Christ crushed Satan's head, Satan's power. So the point that I'm trying to make is that it wasn't Joseph's seed that crushed Satan's head, or a Roman soldier's seed that crushed Satan's head. It was a woman's seed referring to Mary. Now, of course, it isn't talking about the virgin birth, but it's a first hint we have that it's the seed of woman, it's the seed of Mary that will crush Satan. The next reference is in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, go in your Bibles to the middle of the Bible. You'll find the Psalms, Proverbs, Job. And then after that, you'll get to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Have a look at that. Here we have, we can't go into all the context, but here we have a messianic promise of the coming of the Messiah. What will be the sign? How will you know that the Messiah has come? So, so Isaiah, uh, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, speaking to Israel, God's people, He gives us a sign, a messianic sign of when the Messiah will come. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name 
Emmanuel. Now, the word, the Hebrew word that Isaiah uses here for a virgin is the word Alma. It can mean either virgin or young woman. It can mean one or the other. And those who deny the virgin birth will argue that it obviously means just a young girl, not a virgin. But they're wrong, because that word is only used nine times in the Old Testament. And in every single case, it's never used of a married woman or a wife or someone who has had sexual intercourse. It's only used of a virgin. Even outside the Bible, in biblical writings, it is always used of a, of a virgin, not of a wife. And of course, Isaiah tells us that it's a sign. Well, it's not a sign if it's a young girl who gives birth to a baby. That's not a sign. That's normal. It's normal for young women to have babies. And we've had quite a few of them recently, which is good. But that's normal. That's not a sign. That's not unique. No, it, it will be a sign. Why is it a sign? Because a virgin will give birth to a baby. My goodness, that's a sign. If ever there was a sign. Back to Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew picks up from Isaiah. Notice there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So what Matthew tells us is that the virgin birth was prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ. Imagine that. Isaiah lived 700 years before the birth of Christ, and he prophesied that when the Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, when the King comes, there will be a virgin birth. And that's exactly what happens. I mean, that's extraordinary. Can you prophesy what's going to happen next year? Can you prophesy who's going to win the Premier League? Will it be Liverpool or Man City? Well, we don't know, do we? let alone two years' time or five years' time or ten years' time, 700 years before the birth of Christ, it was prophesied that the Savior will be born of a virgin. Let's have a look at how it happened. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Before they came together means before they had sexual intercourse. Now, in those days, betrothal was, was a little bit like engagement, but much, much more. It normally didn't last for more than 12 months. A couple got engaged. Joseph and Mary got engaged. They were betrothed. But it was actually a legal contract, and it was legally binding. So if you broke patrol, you could be taken to court. In fact, if, if, if the girl fell pregnant, if there was sexual intercourse, she could be charged with adultery while they were betrothed. That's why, that's why, that's why we told Joseph uh, decided quietly to divorce her. They weren't married yet. They were betrothed. It was a much stronger legal contract, but there was no sexual intercourse. Then notice verse 18 and 20 again, that Mary conceived not through sexual activity, but through divine agency, the Holy Spirit. So verse 18, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20b, notice again, 
the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't mean that the Spirit was the sexual partner of Mary. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that she's been immoral or that she's committed adultery or she's had an affair with a Roman soldier. No, he's not saying that. No, he's saying that she conceived through the creative, supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. And then we read verse 24 and 5. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not, which means there was no sexual intercourse until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We know from Mark chapter 6, verse 3, that Jesus had at least, well, he had four brothers and at least two sisters. But before the birth of Jesus, he knew her not. So Matthew wants to make it quite clear. He wants to make it abundantly clear that she was a virgin until the birth of Jesus. You see the same thing in Luke chapter 1. Turn with me quickly, last, last reference uh, Luke chapter 1, verse, verse 30. Luke gives us the same account, uh, uses slightly different terminology, but it's the same account. Chapter 1, verse 30. Have you got it there? Chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So it's quite clear that, that, the, that the authors, uh, be it Isaiah, be it Matthew, be it Luke, be it the other gospel authors, they are not treating this as a mythical event or a legend or a story. Um, no, the, the language, the terminology is the same as the rest of the gospel, which is historical. Let me give you a historical record of what happened. He speaks in a very matter-of-fact way. So there we have what does the Bible say. Quite clear. Mary, the virgin, conceives a baby boy not through any sexual activity with Joseph, but by a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. All right, second question. What are we, why is it important? Now, there's a number of reasons, but let me mention two of them. First of all, it affirms that Christianity is supernatural. In fact, if you deny the supernatural nature of the Christian faith, there is no Christianity. So we believe not in a closed universe, we believe in an open universe. That life is more than you can touch and smell and see and count. It's an open universe. That the biblical universe includes the natural and the supernatural. And the supernatural world, the biblical world, includes God and Satan and evil spirits and angels and heaven and hell and judgment and miracles. It's quite clear. 
God's act of creation is supernatural. God uh, parting the Red Sea during the Exodus is supernatural. God speaking through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament giving us the Bible is supernatural. The miracles of Christ are supernatural, feeding the 5,000, raising the dead, healing the sick. The resurrection of Christ is supernatural. The ascension of Christ is supernatural. We have a supernatural God. We have a supernatural book. We have a supernatural savior. We have a supernatural conversion. We have a supernatural eternity, a supernatural heaven and hell. Well, the virgin birth is no different, is it? It's supernatural. So if you can accept a supernatural God who acts in supernatural ways, well then, the virgin birth is in the same ballpark. It's kind of logical. If Jesus was a supernatural man who did supernatural things, you would expect that he was born in a supernatural way. Not illogical. So once you accept a creator God, basically you nailed So uh, there's no way out. Once you accept a creator God, you accept a supernatural God. You, You accept a God who acts through natural ways and supernatural ways. He can do both. Why? He's God, for goodness sake. Can't he do that? As I've often, often said before, but you may be new here this morning, if your problem is with miracles, if you have a problem with miracles, your problem isn't with miracles. Your problem is with your doctrine of God. If you have a small God, well, it's going to be tough to pull this off. If you have the God who created the universe, who created the laws of nature, surely he can suspend the laws of nature for his own purposes. If he's the God of the Bible, if he's the God of the universe. That's not, that's, that's not unreasonable. That's not illogical. It's not unscientific. If he's the God of the universe. My dear friends, the the authors of the Gospels were not stupid. On the contrary, why on earth would they include the virgin birth if it wasn't true? They would have known that it would have been a hindrance to faith. They would have known that their readers would have laughed or ridiculed on what they had written. There's no reason they would have included it if it wasn't true. So it teaches us, why is it important? It teaches us that Christianity is supernatural. That is what it is. Second thing it teaches us is the incarnation. Now the incarnation is a big word. It means God becoming flesh. It means God taking on human form. It means that Jesus is a God-man, God in the flesh. That's what the word incarnation means. That's what we remember at Christmas time, the incarnation of God. God became flesh. And just by the way, I find it interesting that people who deny the virgin birth very often have problems with many of the other miracles in the Bible and sometimes deny the deity of Christ. They kind of go together. In a very real sense, the primary purpose of the virgin birth is the incarnation. It's by means of the virginal conception that the pre-existent Christ, the pre-existent word, becomes flesh. So, when someone hears that Jesus is the God-man, and they ask, how did this happen? 
How on earth did this come about? That Jesus is the God-man. Well, the answer is the virgin birth. That's the answer. Look again at Matthew 1. Notice the link between verse 20 and verse 23. Verse 20, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, virgin birth. Verse 23, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, incarnation. In other words, it's through the virgin birth that God is with us in the flesh, that God is, Jesus is the God-man. He's not a demigod. He's not a hybrid. He's not half God and half man. No, Jesus is 100% God and 100% human and 100% sinless. And it came about when God the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, the human being, and supernaturally conceived Jesus in her womb. So the incarnation is dependent on the virgin birth. Many, many years ago, I took a young man home from Bible college. And uh, his home was quite a long distance, which means that for three months he hadn't been home, and he was newly married. And uh, so I picked him up from college, and I drove, drove him home. And um, when we got to his home, and he got out the door, and he closed the door, suddenly his, his, his wife, his new wife, just appeared there. She was radiant, and she was beautiful. And I noticed that the, that the eyes locked almost in disbelief. And then they slowly walked to each other and they held hands as if to say, this is real. It's, it, it's been three months and here, here she is. And then he took her in his arms and he started to kiss her. And at that point, I looked away. It was too personal, it was too intimate, and it was almost as if I was an intruder. In the same way, Matthew gives us no more details of the conception, because his Jewish reverence causes him to look away. It's too personal. It's too intimate. 1st question what does the bible say second question why is it important third question what does it mean to us i mean here we are 2020 just about it's a new decade and um martin still to <laughs> martin still believes in the virgin birth what does it mean to us well let me give you three things first of all it reminds us of the mystery of god so human nature, all of us, are uncomfortable with tension. We're uncomfortable when there's a paradox. Things don't seem to fit. We're uncomfortable when there seems to be a contradiction, especially when it comes to God. So we want to pin God down into our tidy little cubby holes. We want to pin him down to our airtight boxes, our definitions. But that is not possible with the God of the Bible. You see, our fallen, limited, finite minds can never plumb the depths of God. 
God's nature, God's purposes, God's mind, God's character. We know a great deal about him, but we cannot plumb the depths of the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. Per definition, there will always be a real element of mystery when we're talking about God. If we knew everything about God, he wouldn't be God. That's why we worship him. The inscrutable God of the Bible who acts in mysterious ways. And by the way, God doesn't give us all the answers. He doesn't have to. He's God. And so we worship him because he's trustworthy. Perhaps some of you need to hear that this morning because you've been going through deep waters. You don't understand, and often we don't. I've told you before that I sometimes drive away from a home where there's been a tragedy, a death, a child has died, a young husband, young wife has died with kids. And I drive away and I say to God, I say, God, if I was God, I wouldn't have done this. But at the end, my dear friends, I'm not God and you're not God. He's trustworthy, even if he doesn't give us all the answers. There's a mystery when it comes to the character of God, the nature of God, the mind of God, the purposes of God. And that's why we worship him. He's God. Second thing, it, 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 it reminds us that, that God works in the most unexpected and the most unlikely ways. You can't predict how God worked. So you think to yourself, here I am, I'm stuck in this position. My dear friends, you do not know how God works. You don't know how unexpectedly God can act in our lives, our circumstances. Do you know that God can bring good out of evil? Do you know that? Do you know that God can bring light out of the deepest darkness? Do you know that God can make something out of nothing? Do you know that God works in the most unusual, unlikely ways to accomplish his purposes? Both then, I mean, this is unexpected, this is unlikely, this is, this is, this is a mystery. And yet God will accomplish his purposes. So, so, so let's imagine, um, let's imagine that uh, God said, Martin, if you could plan the salvation of the world, what would you, what would you do? I mean, how would you plan the salvation of God? Well, I think I would mobilize Deloitte Digital, Saatchi and Saatchi. I would, I would uh, use CNN and BBC and Al, Jaze Al Jazeera. I would use the movers and shakers of the world, Justin Bieber, Beyonce, Donald, Boris. But not the God of the Bible. He doesn't work like that. He goes to Palestine, the back end of the Roman Empire. Not to Antioch, not to Rome, not to, not to Corinth. No, he goes to Palestine, the back end of the Roman Empire, to Nazareth. It's a one-horse rural village. It's a kind of village. It has no traffic light, no spa, and even no pep store. <laughs> that is Nazareth. And all his eternal plans, his eternal plans from the beginning before creation, all his eternal plans are pinned on this one young virgin Jewish girl 
saying her prayers. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? The God of the Bible works in the most unexpected, unlikely ways. He will accomplish his purposes for his world, for his church, for his people, for you and me, if we are in Christ. He will achieve his purposes. Make no mistake. He will achieve his purposes. He will do what he promised, but how he will do it is actually his call, not ours. Remember that. Third and lastly, it reminds us, the virgin birth reminds us, that salvation is from God. It wasn't the doing of Mary or Joseph. No, it was the doing of God. God took the initiative. Redemption isn't what we do, it's what God does. Isn't it? Redemption is a supernatural act of God which started with a supernatural birth. Christ's birth, it was God's initiative and God's power. Your spiritual birth and mine, if you are in Christ, is God's initiative. It's God's power. We can't do it. We can't pull it off. Don't think to yourself, I can save myself if I just go to church often enough, pray, say my prayers often enough. You're not going to save yourself by being good. That's not going to work. No, it's God's initiative. It's God's action. All we can do is call on God for mercy. Oh, Lord, will you rescue me? Will you save me from my sins? And that is actually why Jesus came. Did you notice verse 21? The angel said to Joseph, you shall call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. He was born to die. To die in our place and to rescue us. If you've never turned to Christ and called on him to rescue you, wouldn't today be a good day to finally stop ducking and diving, stop messing around, call on Jesus that he may supernaturally save you because it's only going to take a miracle to save you. I know you. <laughs> only a miracle is going to do it. And you can't pull it off, and nor can I. All we can do is call on God. Will you have mercy on me? Well, let's pray together. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. Father, there may be someone here this morning who, as we were singing and praying and reading your word, has felt God's spirit pressing in upon their mind and upon their heart. That today's the day. I need to finally get right with God. Let me say to you, my friend, it doesn't matter where you've been and what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad it is and how deep it is. There is grace in Jesus and Jesus alone. Why don't you this morning say, Oh Lord, have mercy on me. Save me. Make me a Christian. 
And we thank you, Lord, that when we call upon you in that way, that you hear and you answer. And Father, there are some of us here this morning who have drifted from you. Some of us who've been in the darkness. Some of us who've played in the shadows. All of us, Lord, at one point or the other, have doubted your goodness, have doubted your love, have doubted your sovereignty. Will you forgive us, Lord, for that sin? Help us to trust you because you are trustworthy. Father, work amongst us this morning, we pray. And so, Lord, go with us into this week. Help us to place our feet on Christ, the only rock, the only refuge that doesn't change. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.